All right. So uh, my name is Josh Levine. I am the co-founder and CEO of Private Market Labs. We are a new platform for small business mergers and acquisitions, and this is Private Market Insights, a Twitter Spaces series where we host detailed and tactical conversations about small business M&A with our community here on Twitter. This is the second episode in a mini-series about the first 100 days after acquiring a small business. And Kalsub, I know you acquired your business more than 100 days ago, but we're going to sort of go through the, the first beginning transition period, and uh, we can expand upon that. But cool. uh, we have uh, Kalsub Deo, who is the president of Bluma Tree Experts, here with us today. And uh, he is the jack-of-all-trades operator, CEO, and uh, all-around expert in the business, and we are thrilled to have him here. Um, huge uh, influencer here on SMB Twitter, and excited to uh, to have the conversation. Awesome! Thanks for having me, Josh. Fantastic. So, um, just to kick this off, um, could you tell us a little bit about your acquisition of Bluma Tree Experts? Uh, how did you find the deal? What was that negotiation process like? And uh, is there anything you did pre-acquisition to ensure a smooth transition? Yeah. Um, well, so my background, kind of like you put in the title, is I, I worked in private equity before getting into search. Um, you know, I was working for middle market slash upper middle market. What what you define that as kind of random, um, but primarily looking at businesses that were bigger than thirty million of EBITDA. Um, and at the mm-hmm. biggest, um, we acquired Univision, the Spanish language channel, which was like a billion of EBITDA. So it's a pretty wide range. Um, <laughs> yeah. We didn't buy, we bought a third of it, if not a hundred percent of it, but it was still, that was by far the biggest company I've ever worked with on an acquisition. Um, sure. So a big part of getting into search was like resizing, how do you do mergers and acquisitions for this context, which is obviously super different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like all the bells and whistles I was used to, like just don't work in this, in this world. Partially because like sellers won't accept it, um, but right. partially because like there's not enough money in the deals. Like I've in my PE deals, we spent way more on legal bills than like the my entire acquisition for you know my small business, and so you just have to size that you know very differently. But anyways, I did a part time self funded search, um, part time because my private equity firm let me keep working for them part time. I um, found Bluma through a brokerage search. I was, because I was part-time, I was mostly just doing brokers. Found them through a great broker named Will Fry, who is uh, actually nationwide, um, but, you know, trying to disrupt small business brokerage. Got it through him. Um, It's a residential and commercial tree care business in uh, Seattle, which is my hometown. So it's actually like, you know, where the office used to be is, like a three minute drive from my high school, which, uh, oh, which that's wild. works out really nicely. Yeah. So I kind of know all the neighborhoods we operate in. Um, so I met them October of last year. We went under LOI in uh, November, November 19th. And then we closed on February 24th. So we're now hitting the uh, nine month mark with the business. Um, and, you know, we could talk about the first hundred days, but we could talk about all nine months as well. Um, and then in terms of like that process to buy the business and the negotiations and all that, you know, I can go down whatever path you want, but I think the biggest thing is all of these small businesses have just massive owner dependence issues. Um, and mine was no different. It was a father son ownership team where there are two crews. Each of them was a crew leader, like four days a week. And then, you know, being the salesperson one day a week. So there was a massive transition 
you know, process to basically have both of them roll out of crew leading um, and sales and kind of replace them with internal folks. And uh, we spent a lot of time sort of working out, is that even possible? I actually passed on the deal initially because I just said, this isn't doable. They called yeah. back and they were like, no, 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 I think we can do it. And so a big part of the, you know, negotiations and discussions, even pre-LOI were like, you know, what are we going to need to do to actually make this an operable business once the owners have left? And so, you know, we walked from SDE down to EBITDA with a bunch of performa costs and like mm-hmm. we, we reduced SDE to EBITDA by like over 30% as part of that negotiation. And so what they, you know, they're asking multiple had been like just under four and a half times. We actually, we, that's what I paid. We paid just under four and a half times, which I thought was a fair multiple for the business, but we reduced SDE to buyer's EBITDA by, you know, it was a, a huge chunk. And so that was, I think the biggest part. And then I think the other major element that came up during the uh, the negotiations was the seller debt, um, how to structure it, how it should be um, personally guaranteed or not, which we can get into. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of different paths we can go down there. So I'll, I'll kick it back to you, Josh. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. Um, in terms of that that conversation with the, the father-son team and getting to understand their processes and operations and just getting comfortable with the the key man risk associated with the business. Um, you mentioned that you guys had several conversations around how to manage that transition and how to make that work with them leaving the business. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we hear a lot when it comes mm-hmm. to transitioning a business in terms of, you know, how do you, uh, how, how do you manage that kind of a transition? I think that that's, that's something that's, you know, cer- certainly at top of mind for a lot of people. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about those conversations. Yeah. So I think for me, there's sort of two, two things you, I did. Like the first was mapping out the process, like as granularly as possible from like, I mean, if you think about a tree business, they're not, it's not a very complicated business, but like right. from the start, it's like a customer finds us, you know, and then like, what are the ways they find us? That's like step one. Step two, they like reach out to us. What are all the ways they reach out to us? Step three, like, how do we respond to their inquiry? What do we do? And, you know, for us, that's like set up an estimate meeting. How does the estimate meeting go? Like, what does the estimator do? What do they give them at the end of the meeting? Um, And just keep ticking through this, like, as granularly as you can until you've really mapped out, like, from start to finish. And then, obviously, at the end, it's like, you get paid. It gets accounted for in QuickBooks. Like, who's even doing that? Right? And so you're trying to create this full map from start to finish of how your business makes money. Um, and then once you've done that, then you can start attaching people, right. And saying, okay, like this person is doing these five tasks. This person Mm -hmm. is just doing this one task. And so like, I went through that process of like kind of laying out a table where like, if you can imagine a table with a bunch of columns, all the columns are like specific roles or tasks. And then Mm -hmm. all the rows are like specific people in the business, which is actually doable in a small business. Cause there's only what, you know, like five to 20 people, depending on the size of business you're looking at. And so I went through that and I was like, okay, like this person, like one of the owners is, you know, three days a week climbing trees, one day a week doing sales, one day a week doing all this like list of admin activities. And so then when I look at, you know, myself coming in, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to take over a bunch of these admin things. I'm going to take over these other tasks, but like, I've got like a person and a half's worth of these other things to do. And then you start figuring out, okay, like who can you internally promote to take on some of that? And so you start like shifting around their like time allocation and skill allocation until you figure out, okay, who all do I need to actually hire? 
And then that's sort of the, yeah. And then you go do the research on what it'll cost to hire those people. And now you're starting to get close to what, you know, pro forma EBITDA might be. Gotcha. So I guess, was it the sort of movement from this chart role exercise that you did to, okay, I think I can manage these costs based on who I need to hire. Was that the moment when you got comfortable with the business or was there, was there something else that really took place as you were thinking about the transition uh, and during your, your uh, due diligence process? Yeah. I mean, the other big one for me, honestly, was it wasn't clear to me how much the clients really trusted the father and son themselves, you know, for Hmm. that work. And because, you know, arborists are, it's a skilled trade. Um, It's a science and an art. And so like figuring out what you should do with your trees, it's not like you could have 10 arborists look at the same tree and come up with 10 different recommendations. Um, And so one of my worries (laughs) was like, is it just these guys and the clients really trust them? And so I spent two days just shadowing them on, um, you know, their sales meetings, like their estimate meetings. And I came out of that being like, okay, no, like, I don't think the secret sauce is like, they're amazing salespeople are like unbelievably trustworthy. Like that's like, they they don't have like some amazing bedside manner that was Mm -hmm. a differentiator, Um, which, you know, like they're, they're just like pretty gruff dudes. They kind of like say what they mean and they kind of get through the estimates, but I didn't come away from that being like, oh man, like how are we ever going to replace that? Um, gotcha. and that, luckily that has generally proven true. Like when we've had new estimators come in and work for us, like their closing rates have been similar to the former owners. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, so as you sort of stepped in, you know, what were some of the first things you did? Obviously you, know, you mentioned, you know, some of the people you wanted to hire. So the promotions, did you start doing that right away? Did you start with additional employee uh, interviews? Did you have a listening period? Like what were sort of, how fast did you move once you got into the business? Um, I moved pretty slow, I would say. Um, even the stuff that I wanted to change quickly, I pretty quickly learned that like it was going to be forced to go slow. Like everything I had in mind about changing still took like three times longer than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so honestly, like the first few weeks, a lot of time was spent just getting everything transferred over in an asset sale, like QuickBooks being like the most painful of all of them, Uh, (laughs) but also like phone numbers and like truck registrations and like all of that crap like took forever um, and was a huge pain. And so I was sort of filling my time in between that by just learning how to be effectively like the office manager, because that's what the, Mm -hmm. the seller's wife was doing. Um, And a lot of these small businesses you'll see are structured like that. It's like an owner and effectively his wife um you know who runs the whole office so we spent a lot of time doing that we did have like you know an intro meeting with the whole team you know within a few days of taking over and we can talk about that a little bit because that was interesting but i mean the short answer to your question is like no did not start messing with things like at all for at least a month gotcha so in terms of that intro meeting you know what what was what was that like and how did everything unfold after that so we did it at a pizza place nearby our office and uh, Martin, the former owner, basically told all the guys, you know, like, hey, mandatory meeting after the, you know, you're done with your jobs, come to the pizza place and we'll have pizza and beer. Um, so they were all there. I was there. I had sort of prepared some scripts for <laughs> both the seller and for myself. Um, it became pretty clear as soon as we started that the seller had not read my script for it. <laughs> um, but that's okay. Um, so he... He pretty much gave a really short, like, hey, everyone, just wanted to let you know that I've decided to sell the business. Uh, this is Costa, the buyer. 
uh, he bought the business, um, and I'll hand it over to him now. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, <laughs> it was not exactly... put you right on the spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it, it was okay. Like you know, from there, you know, I gave them the pitch on like, listen, like I'm not from the industry. Like I'm here to learn from you guys. You like I'm not here to tell you how to climb trees and how to prune trees. Like you guys already know how to do that. What I am good at is I know how to get a business running. I know how to make sure your schedules are filled. I know how to help us grow over time. Um, and so, you know, if you're here, this is really like the next five, 10, 15 years of our company. Like if we're growing, there's going to be a lot of new seats that open up, new responsibilities that need to be filled. And so, you know, if you can kind of bear with me through a learning process, there's going to be, you know, exciting new opportunities for everyone here. Um, and that was sort of the, the gist of it. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. So um, what were some of the things that went particularly well? You know, um, you, you stepped in, you know, what were there any things that were maybe smoother than you expected? Or you said, man, I was really on top of this. And uh, I'm glad that this turned out the way that it went or it went exactly as planned. Like what, what were some of the best, the most easy, smooth parts of it? Um, I'd say the like easiest, smoothest part was the cruise. Like they just kept showing up every day and they kept doing good work and they kept like, you know, doing quality work and maintaining high levels of productivity. And like, none of that is a function of me, <laughs> right? Like that is a hundred percent a function of the crews being strong, being good at what they do. Um, that was, it was also partially a function of the sellers, you know, holding up their end of the bargain in terms of the seller transition. Um, so we basically, mm -hmm. I, the, the dad signed a three, three month transition with me and the son signed a one year transition with me. And both of them like work super hard through like their three month and you know, the, the son is still working with me. Um, so I was pretty mm -hmm. lucky on that front. Cause you know, you can do all the character diligence or like conversations you want with a seller, but you don't really know what it's going to be like when seven figures hit their bank account, you know? Um, yeah. And so to their credit, they did a lot of, you know, really hard work post close on getting the business transition over. That's great. I guess, is there um, any lessons learned in terms of, obviously, it's, it's you can do as much due diligence as you want on this piece, but you know, any any advice for the community or, or any lessons learned in terms of, hey, like, I was able to suss out mm -hmm. that these crew, these crew members weren't working, I mean, they were working for these people, but they weren't getting up because they had this deep belief that, like, these are my guys, yeah. I'm going to, like, you know, go to war for these guys, you know, for, for example, you know, this is, this is their job. They, they care about their crews. They care about their work, but it's not, you know, the, the key man risk wasn't so emotional that you were going to, you know, risk, uh, you know, people leaving or a lot of turmoil and things like that. Like how, any advice for how people might be able to suss that out as they're going through their own acquisitions? Yeah. I mean, there was one crew or there's one climber, lead climber in particular that we were going to promote internally to, he was going to be the new crew leader to replace the dad who would retire. And so I did make it a condition of club sale that I would get to meet him like right before we sign on the bottom line. And so on the dotted line other. And so it was a really short 15, you know, minute, 20 minute conversation, like the week before signing that, you know, I got to meet that one climber and just have a really quick conversation being like, Hey, like, this is what's going on. I just want to make sure you're comfortable with that. You're not like, it's okay to be like, what the heck's going on? But is it like, I don't right. want this at all. Like I'm not interested in this kind of change. Like what's your gut reaction? And his gut mm -hmm. reaction was like totally balanced. And he was like, look, like I want to learn more about what you're thinking. I want to understand like why, like what all is happening here. But 
I, like verbatim, he said, like, I'm not a flight risk, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and so something like, and then, you know, that's all I was really looking for out of that conversation. It's still imperative on me to retain everyone. Like nobody, they don't owe me anything. Um, but I think that was an important thing for me to do because that there's a couple roles that are just much harder to replace, like those lead climber type of people. Those are just harder place people to hire. Um, but below that, it was a little, I was a little bit more comfortable where if there was serious churn, we'd be able to work it out. So I guess in terms of like, you mentioned that it's a skilled trade and that, you know, there's a, obviously there's, I'm sure a lot of experience and a lot of training that goes into being a lead climber. You know, are there specific places where you would go to, to find someone like that or, um, you know, other resources externally to the business that you talk to when you were trying to figure out, Hey, like, what is it like to operate a tree business? How do I go for it? Did you talk to other arborists, for example? I did. Um, I like I definitely worked the network a little bit to try to get to meet as many industry experts as possible, uh, which I got to speak to like somebody at the like biggest PE back roll up in the space. I got to speak to another like third generation owner um, out on the East Coast. I, I got to speak to another searcher who had closed in a similar business like, about a year before me. Um, and so like working like this small business Twitter and small business, like search community in general, like I, I basically worked that network and was able to connect with some really smart people who were able to get me sharp on the industry really fast. So that like number one, huge benefit. Um, number two is the like industry trade groups have a ton of information. If you can kind of figure out which are the, you know, the important trade groups. So for us, there's right. like two specific ones. And so I started reading, you know, their magazines and their like whatever, all their, they have a bunch of like educational material. So uh, that helped. And then the third thing I did was, and this was sort of one of my investors' ideas, I actually put up a job posting on Indeed, basically looking for a new climber to try and suss out like, what, like, am I going to get 50 applications or am I going to get like one application? And like, That's you great. know, what does that dynamic look like? Um, and honestly, like, if we had gotten some good applicators, we got a few, like those are people that I would was ready to hire in theory as soon as we closed. But it was partially just a market test also for us to understand like what happens when you, when you post something like that. Uh, that's really interesting. That's a nice test of the labor market too. Just what is the demand? How specialized are the roles? How, you know, or do people move from place to place a little bit mm -hmm. or is it really stable? Like that's all stuff you can, you know, really suss out with some creative research. Yeah. And so, the other thing I did um, is yeah. I went through Google maps. These are all hyper local businesses, right? And so on Google maps, I like just kept searching tree service in different sections of the Seattle market and like starring every company that would pop up. And I made like a list of all of those. And then I went through a bunch of their websites to see who had like now hiring pages and uh, like job listings. And so then I kind of made my own little directory of all the job listings I could find and like what starting pay looked like or pay range, like how they, you know, describe the key you know like what requirements or what levels of experience and i was through that able to come up with a, a sense for like what is market uh for you know hiring these types of people with the caveat mm -hmm. that like these are all the people who have been unable to hire someone some markets probably <laughs> right these are the open are jobs the open job, exactly um and so the people you really want are the ones who are like happy at their job and you have to shake them out um right that being said like that was another way to kind of suss out what is market to hire folks like that any other interesting tests that you did that you thought were, were especially helpful? Um, 
No, I think that I think that the cover, like kind of the qualitative and a couple of quantitative ways, you know, they're still qualitative, they're still anecdotal, but it's a little bit more numeric than just like talking to people and seeing what they think. Because the problem you run into is when you speak to just industry experts, like they've got some rules of thumb that might actually be stale because the market changes pretty quickly. Mm. We went through a high inflation period. So like in certain markets, like think people you were hiring for 25 to 30 an hour, you're now hiring for like 40 to 50 an hour. And so like some mm-hmm. of the folks who have been in the industry too long, like they haven't been able to transition to that or understand that. Um, and so that's actually for us kind of an advantage that we know that the market can sustain that type of pay rate because the pricing can move that far. And so we can actually go get those people. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. And it really reflects kind of the entrepreneurial piece of the search process in general, right? So it's not just, hey, I have a theory on how to implement some additional technology and step into a business, but really I have almost a disruptor or a, you know, um, uh, not counterintuitive, but, but sort of contrarian view on how some of the business practices are that I think if I implemented them, we would be able to win in this space. I think that that's, that's a key element that I think we don't always talk about that so much. I don't see conversations on that level as often, but it's a really important. Yeah. I mean, I spoke Um, to a guy who, like I said, third generation tree company owner in a much more rural East coast market. And when I kind of walked him through the, the numbers of the business I was looking to buy, he was like, he was basically convinced there was some kind of fraud in the numbers. <laughs> like he just didn't believe them. <laughs> and it was a function of like, yeah, you know what? Like, pr- like city of Seattle proper, like really tight property lots with like, you know, all million dollar plus homes. It's just a totally different pricing market than, you know, rural, right. uh, I forget what's like North Carolina, rural, North Carolina or Virginia. Um, and so you know, you have to take those, those industry experts, you know, you, you have to kind of adjust them. They're, they're still correct. You just have to like calibrate them to your specific market. Cause these small business, like service businesses, like they are, they're just hyper, hyper local businesses. Like even like two cities over is like irrelevant to you. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that's really great. Uh, really great color. Um, what about, you know, are there any parts of the transition that didn't go quite as smoothly or, you know, maybe even just some lessons learned, you know, coming out of it, looking back on your first few months uh, in the job, yeah. you know, what are some things that you, you know, maybe you would have done differently or just some things that you learned that, um, you know, if you would give people advice about, hey, well, you could do this. This is one thing I bumped into, you know, however you want to frame that question. Yeah. Um, I think one of the roles I've really struggled with on hiring is another salesperson, um, which in our industry, it's like they're, they're an arborist, like they're a certified arborist, but they, they do sales, right? They're out giving estimates and we mm-hmm. needed to hire one as part of the transition. I was kind of freaked out about it because that was like an important role for us. And I've so far hired two that both churned within like 30 to 45 days for various reasons. And mm-hmm. none of the reasons were like bad, but at the same time, like, it was partially a function of me not running a proper hiring pro- like process and being kind of like, man, I just got to get someone in here. And so sort of just filling the role as soon as I found somebody who sort of met the basic requirements. And I think like that for me was a learning is like, I got to slow way down and like, it's okay for running at like a, you know, not optimized way or just like, you know, balls are falling, but like that's still better than making a bad hire or making it because like there's yeah. so much more turmoil created when you do make a hire and then they leave because it just generates all this like uncertainty and like you've made all these like scheduling around them and like clients got to know them and then they're gone. So like 
I, I just wish I'd slowed down a little bit on the new hiring on a, on a couple of roles like that. Um, so I think that was, that was an important one. And, you know, what we ended up doing is not hiring another salesperson for now and instead doing more cross training internally with our, our existing guys. And now we have mm-hmm. like more than one person capable of doing sales, which is actually just better for the business overall. Like we're just not nearly as fragile and we now can start to, you know, use different people in different ways, which gives us more scheduling flexibility. Do you feel like hiring, particularly for sales, is really different on the SMB level than when you were doing some of the PE work? Like obviously in a big PE acquisition, you're all, you're still managing sales teams or marketing teams. You know, how does is it really the skill sets and the experience in the industry that are the big difference, or were there any other particular particular SMB related hiring practices mm-hmm. that you didn't think that that didn't fit your expectation based on your background well i mean look like when i was in pe i i was not involved with hiring at all right like it's just not a skill set I right um, i was involved in like new executive hiring right in terms of like helping our partners at the PE firm make those decisions and kind of going through profiles uh, i was particularly involved in like helping set pay structures around equity comp and stuff like that but honestly, like a lot of that isn't that relevant in small business. It's like too <laughs> much, like too many leads. Um, and so, like, honestly, I was sort of starting from scratch a little bit. And, you know, when you're talking about executives for a 50 or 100 million EBITDA business, like they make a lot of money, but you're not like the pay is you're not super worried about the pay, like whether it's another 200K or 100K or whatever to that executive it doesn't really make a difference because like they could triple your business and you've invested like $200 million, right? So like, it's just like a rounding error. Right. That's not the case in small business, right? Because <laughs> like, if you've got 10 employees, like one employee is like 10% more employee. And so like, right. every hire, no matter how minute is like actually way more important in that sense. And you just have way less budget to work with, you know, like I had never appreciated how important it was to have like, some real PL between revenue and EBITDA because like that's the, the cost you can go you know put into your people yep absolutely that that's fantastic um overall um how did the process go relative to your your expectations coming in the uh transition process the transition and um yeah the mostly on the transition process how did that go and then uh, what was the biggest surprise um I think like I was not worried about like transitioning over software and pro and like basic processes and stuff like that. And that turned out to be like a humongous headache. And I was super worried about transitioning over the crews and like having them continue to be productive. And that ended up going like super smoothly. <laughs> and so like in the scheme <laughs> of things, like I, it, the transition went fine. It went fine. Like in all the ways I didn't expect it to go fine and vice versa. So like, I don't know anything about anything basically, but it did work out. <laughs> um, and like, you know, these small business deals, there's some level of binary risk to them where like you get in the door and you find out immediately like, oh my God, like what is happening here? Um, right. Like I know, I think it's AO, right. Who's been on several podcasts and talked about you know that with his business, but luckily that was not the case. And so I think like once you get past that initial, like, okay, it's a real business. There's not fraud. There's not like strippers for salespeople. Like right. <laughs> that moment, like a lot of it is just like, this is just your life now, right? Like you're going to have a million right. problems and like your job is to handle those problems like week after week. Um, right. Like at this stage, 
So like, like if, if the business boils down to like steps A through F to like from beginning to end to get paid as a business, like at the moment, for the most part, as long as everything follows those steps, like my team can handle it. There's only a few of those steps that I still take ownership of, but my job as like the owner is really exception handling, right? So like anytime something falls out of those seven steps, like I need to help out and kind of solve that issue and then give it back to the team. The problem right. is like that exception handling is still like 90% of my time. Right? Like, <laughs> just the reality of it. But like the goal is over time, like as much as you can, like every time you there's an exception, if you can add it into your like systems flow and now the team knows how to handle that exception, like that's one less exception when it happens the next time, like they now know how to handle it. Um, gotcha. so that's the process I've been going through, but in terms of like, what do you think about the transition period? Like you're at max, like every exception and parts of the main process feel like your responsibility. And then, you know, over the course of the hundred days to several months to nine months to hopefully it continues, I don't know yet, but you know, those exceptions keep being reduced, not because they're not happening, but because like the team knows how to manage them now. Gotcha. Great. Uh, well, I have one more question for you, and then um, I'll open it up to questions from the audience. So everyone, you know, get ready uh, and start thinking about your questions. Um, so a few weeks ago, I mentioned this is uh, episode two of our little mini series about the first hundred days. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Justin Vogt, mm -hmm. who is running a Holco strategy, um, and uh, that leads to a number of strategic decisions about what his next acquisition is going to be, how that process is going to go. Mm -hmm. And um, that has really informed kind of how he's transitioned into his business. Um, you've mentioned that you have an own and operate strategy and you've been really hands-on with, with Bluma. You know, how has that experience changed or informed your, your next strategy over the next few years? You know, how are you looking at the industry now that you've acquired and you're in a business operating? Has that shifted anything for you? Right. Um, oh, by the way, I don't know if you and I met, if I mentioned this to you, but Justin and I have actually known each other for years before search. Um, yeah, I think I met, I think I met both of you in person on the same day oh, for the first right, time. Right, so yeah, yeah. So <laughs> me and Justin worked at our, each of our first jobs out of undergrad, um, at Bain Capital in Boston several years ago. Oh, um, fantastic. So I know him from then. And so then he was at Stanford business school, like running the ETA club, which is when I like started talking to him being like, what are you doing? <laughs> and so he was like, one of my guides into the space. Um, but yeah, like Justin is at that one end doing this hold coast strategy, having raised, you know, a real pool of capital to go do multiple acquisitions by design. Um, at the extreme other end, I have a friend also from Bain who started buying schools and doing his own little roll up. And he did that all self-funded off of his own balance sheet to start, then raised some money on like acquisition three, which I invested in. And now he's done like 30 plus. And so like these guys are two very different ends of the spectrum in terms of like right. self-funded or, you know, you know, raise real money, almost traditional. Um, and then I was trying to figure out where I wanted to sit in between those. And mm -hmm. where I kind of landed was one, I cared a lot about having majority control of the business, which is really mm -hmm. hard to do if you have to raise a lot of money up front. Um, right. And then, you know, and related to that, just having governance control. And so I have investors in my deal, but I was pretty explicit with everyone that like, look, like there's a real, like I, I plan to return your capital over time through cash flow. But like we might, you know, there's a real possibility we don't sell this business like ever or like not for 30 years. And like you have, they have to be comfortable with that. And so what that does for me is just open up massive optionality in terms of what we choose to do with the business. Like for now, I'm focused on growing it and kind of building it. But, you know, I kind of told myself and told the investors that, you know, we're going to do that for about two years and then we'll pick our head up. 
and we'll probably go down some mix of three paths. So path one is super excited about the organic opportunity, just focus on the business and grow, you know, grow it. Path two, you know, excited about the industry, not sure what to do with this specific business. And so maybe we have to go buy other, you know, adjacent, you know, tree companies in the area or in other markets. And then three is like, hey, you know, either this was a bad decision to have bought this business or there's just not a lot of opportunity in this industry in general. So, you know, let's let it cash flow. Maybe we sell it, maybe we don't. But let's go take this cash flow and invest it elsewhere in other industries, other types of small businesses. And, and it might be some mix of those three. It's, it's unclear, you know, it's way too early to say. But, like, I, I think that's still my theory, right? It's like one, probably a year or a year and a half from now is when I can actually pick my head up and say like, okay, which of these paths do I want to focus on? Um, that all being said, the one caveat is if there are searchers who want to get into tree services as like their search deal, I would love to support them in that and, you know, be either an advisor, be an investor. Um, it'd be awesome to create like more of a search community in this sector. Cause like, even if I buy more of them, they're almost definitely going to be in the Seattle area. And like I said, these are just very localized businesses. And so yeah. I know there's a searcher who bought one in Austin. There's one who bought one in Chicago. Like we, we keep in touch and I'd love to see more of them you know, across the country. Fantastic. Um, well, with that, let's, uh, let's open it up to questions. So if you have a question for CalStub, please raise your hand and I will call on you and uh, we can make this happen. So as you sort of evaluated your first 100 days post-acquisition, obviously now you're nine months in, how has anything changed for you You know, from those first three months to the next six months in terms of, I mean, obviously your comfort level, but any other any other huge sort of lessons learned or or thought processes that have evolved over the the following six months? Obviously, we talk about the first hundred days, but then you're still running a business for a while after that. So um, yes. we'll, we'll love to hear more about that. And then Dusty, we'll get to you uh, as soon as uh, in one second. Yeah, the big one for me was starting to like lift my head up and focus like weeks to months to quarters down the road as opposed to like days forward. I think the first hundred days, you're just trying to get through to the next day um, without like stuff breaking all around you. Um, and I think sometime about three months in, I was able to actually start looking a little bit further. And part of how I did that was um, I formed an advisory board, which uh, Chase, who's listening, he's one of my advisory board members, uh, which is very nice of him. And uh, I had like four others on that board who are basically just more experienced small business operators and investors than me. And like they, I meet them quarterly and every quarter, you know, there's priorities for the next quarter's meeting. And so that forces me to kind of focus on the like not urgent, important stuff that the business needs um, and really creates like a backbone of like what I'm doing to work on. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I'm going to call on Dusty first and then Chase. Here you. Hey, sorry, I'm uh, losing my voice. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I have a quick question that I wanted to ask. So. I have two other businesses that are real estate related and um, I still have capital that I need to deploy and I'm looking at buying a, a business, but I want to hire an operator. I could probably dedicate about 15 hours a week, maybe 20 to what, you know, what, what, what the interviewee is describing. Do you guys think that's feasible? I mean, hire an operator and, and that kind of route. Or do you think that I, I'm kind of questioning, is this something I should keep pursuing? Or is this, uh, you know, kind of a stupid pipe dream and just stay with real estate? But I want something that cash flows more. So I have basically flipping businesses on the side. 
So I'd like some feedback. I mean, what do you think about, like, say, doing what you're doing, hiring an operator uh, from the get-go and putting in, like, 15 hours a week? Does that seem feasible or does that seem kind of unreasonable? I think it depends on the business, right? I think a business I bought that would not have been feasible, like, this is very much a 40 to 60-hour-a-week job for me. Um, and, yes, like, I, there's a light at the end of the tunnel in which I could set up that system, with an operator in place, but that that's not like a year away. That's like three to four years away. Um, so that's the reality with this business. Are there are businesses where that might be functional? Um, Chase, who's on, is probably better equipped to speak to that than I am, um, given he has done that. Um, but I think like if you're talking in the range of, you know, like I, I just I struggle with the idea of going into the deal with that mindset unless you've done it like a ton of times before and you feel very comfortable supporting them. Um, and like, I, I just feel like I've seen more examples of it not working than it working, even though, like I said, Chase is on is an example of it working. I wonder if you have a, a clear vision of I want to buy this specific kind of business or if you would invest in a searcher who's looking to buy and operate, I think is another question. So sometimes you can almost the line between buyer operator, buyer investor can be a little bit fuzzy. But if you're you know, a buyer investor who wants to take a piece of a company and invest in a searcher's acquisition, that could be another route, too. Hey, thanks for the feedback, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, Chase, I think I did that right. There we go, Chase. I think you're in. Yeah, I think I got it. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're great. Loud and clear. Awesome. Uh, all right, Costub, I've got two questions for you. Um, so first of all, I'm just curious. I, I think the way you entered ETA and the world of small business, uh, as you know, is very different from the way I entered it. And sometimes I envy the approach that you have coming from the perspective you've got being in PE as more of the investor mindset versus the operator mindset. And I'm just curious, what, how is the advice that you give others looking to enter ETA changed since you've uh, been in the cockpit? Um, like how has that evolved since maybe day one, uh, given your learnings? And then my second question is uh, if you had a gun to your head and had to pick your favorite advisory board member, I'm just kind of curious who that would be. <laughs> Listen, there's only one advisory board member on this call, so I think that answers itself. Um, but no, on the on the first one, like I think the biggest change from when I got into search to where I am now is like I had to go through some kind of a grieving process of like, oh, these businesses are not that good, um, like full stop, right? Like relative, like and again, like I'm not like casting like a value judgment on the businesses. But I'm saying that relative to a business that has 50 million of EBITDA the odds that one of our businesses go away is just way higher. They're way more fragile. They're less important to the economy. They're less, you know, structurally in place. They don't have a moat. Like they're just not that good of businesses relative to the businesses that was used to investing in. And I would look at 50 million plus of EBITDA businesses and say like, oh, that's a shit business, right? Which is like crazy in hindsight to think about because there are tons of 50 million plus EBITDA businesses that we were like, we would never touch that. Um, which really like makes you wonder, but and so I think, like, for me, a big element of this was just figuring out, like, what does risk look like at the small business, you know, asset class? What is acceptable risk? What is unacceptable risk? Because I think the first several months of searching, like, every deal felt like unacceptable risk. Um, and so I just had to go through that process of figuring out what risk I could accept. And then, you know, that, and when I think about how I advise 
searchers, I think I've become a lot more, um, I've been a lot more forthright with this idea of like, look, there's a big amount of like, you just got to figure it out. And it's just a question of like, which of these risks are you willing to figure out versus not figure out, you know, and like, it could be owner dependence. Like I was willing to figure out owner dependence. I was never willing to figure out customer concentration, you know, and like somebody who has grown a business like five times in a year, which I've never done. Um, like they might be more comfortable solving the customer concentration risk because they just have that much confidence in their go-to-market and ability to sell, you know, to new customers. So that's, I think, when I think about like what's changed the most is I think like the first several months of search, just every deal was outside of my risk box. And then eventually at like the risk box had to move. Yeah, I like that. And then if I may, Josh, add a follow-on there. Go ahead. I'm kind of curious because I don't know where I stand on the question I'm about to ask. And I go back and forth on this. Um, do you feel like ETA or, or acquiring a small business, you know, let's say under 15 million a year revenue is totally doable for the vast majority of folks who uh, get interested in this as a career opportunity? Um, or, or do you feel like it's, it's less feasible? Just, again, now that you've been in the cockpit for a while, you've seen what kind of problems you're up against, or at least in your industry and your business. Do, do you feel like um, this is something you can recommend to folks that generally have interest in the space? Or do you feel like your stance on that has gone the other direction, saying, actually, this is a lot harder um, than I initially anticipated, and people need to be cautious and really be thoughtful about whether they are a fit for this? Um, I'm not asking my question very well, but I think maybe you're picking up on what I'm getting at. No, for sure. I mean, like, it's definitely not a space that is like, hey, if you've got the money to put the down payment in, then like you should get into it, right? It's not like that at all. Um, I think I have learned more about how much like your temperament and personality matters, setting aside, you know, skills and competence. Because I think, I think what's like really enticing about SMB ETA to like the broad variety of people we see in our community is that it's not really skills driven or competence driven to be able to get in the gatekeepers are like not that strong or not that prevalent and so unlike industries that have strong gatekeepers or prestige markers required to get in which is what finance was you know which is what i did before like this feels a lot more democratic and anyone can get into it as long as you can put together some money and I just feel like that, while that's enticing, it can be misleading, right? Where you do need still some level of, like, it's it's a super risky undertaking, right? Like, a W-2 is just a better, better situation for a lot of dispositions or styles. So even though I don't feel strongly about having a specific skill set or competency set coming into ETA, because God knows, like, I didn't have any skill set that would suggest I'm qualified to run a small business. So it's very self-serving to say that, but, you know, that that is what I think. I do feel like people should still be pretty self-aware and reflective on like, do they really want to be that person? And I think there's also an element of what is the alternative that you're considering? So if you are looking for that ownership, if you have that temperament and you're debating between acquiring a tree company or starting one, there, there, that's a big difference from I'm going to stay in my W-2 life or I'm going to acquire a small business. The, the leap and the, the risk profile and the decision process is very different. And so, you know, I think that that's another key element to that too. So anyway, I'll, I'll let Amir ask his question uh, next. Sorry, Kasim, if you wanted to respond to that, please go ahead. No, right no, 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 yeah. no, I'm on board. Agreed. All right, go ahead, Amir. 
Hey, uh, thanks, Raj. Hey, Kasav, uh, thanks uh, for uh, for the space here. Um, question for you is, uh, when you were going about the acquisition process and you were talking to the seller, um, you know, coming from a white-collar background, going into uh, sort of a blue-collar industry, how did you convince the seller that you were the right fit? Because I recently came across the experience where I was one of two LOIs on a business that I really liked and the impression that the seller got was the the other buyer was more willing to get down and dirty um, and even though he felt like I would be a good manager he decided to go with um, the other buyer on the other side so how did you navigate that interaction with the seller to kind of convince him that even though you're coming from a white collar background that you're the right person um, for the acquisition. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, and look, like in my, like I said in my business, right, the sellers they were actively climbing trees like four days a week, right? Like this dude was a total badass in terms of just getting out there and doing the work. Like there's a very very few tree climbers of his age, like in Seattle or the industry in general. Um, and so yeah, like replacing him is very intimidating and like building credibility with the team is very difficult, right? Um, just because I'm not that person. And I think like, for me, the pitch I was making to our seller was like, one, obviously I do want to learn the industry. I will spend time with the crews, but for us to take this business from where he had gotten it to, to like double or triple the size requires just a very different manager than what he had been, right? Because he was a really excellent manager. This business was perfectly optimized for the size that it was, um, but it was not really capable of growing larger because there were no systems in place for the non-owner, excuse me, for a non-owner to be a crew leader, right? To be able to have crew leaders that are not owners. And so I sort of had to convince him of that. It's like, look, like I'm not from this industry. I'm not blue collar by background, but... I think I can help take this business from where you've built it to the next phase because you just need a different type of manager for the next phase um, and, and lead with a lot of humility on like, man, like, I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing here with the actual tree side of the business. And I'm going to hopefully learn, you know, my plan is to become a certified arborist, which it takes three years in the industry to like, qualify, but I will become a certified arborist. Eventually I am now like a licensed pesticide applicator. Um, and even with the guys, like you have to go through that same credibility process with them of like, listen, I'll come out and work with you guys as like the entry level grunt and like I'll be the worst dude on the crew and like that's okay. But if you see me climbing trees, like you should probably find a job because the business is going under, you know, <laughs> like they've generally all responded to that favorably where they get it. They're like, okay, yeah, we get it. Your job is to go market and make sure our schedules are full and our estimates are coming in and we're priced well and like our job is to go out there and like produce high quality tree work that helps bring in those customers again and again thanks uh thanks for that cost of uh if i may another question um you were talking earlier about risk and you also talked about you know the multiple that you acquired the business for um, and uh, if I recall correctly, this was a SBA funded deal. With the current rise in you know the prime rates and and um, you know the SBA lending rates uh, continuing to creep up, how does that change the calculus on you know those multiples and and the risk um, going into these types of uh, acquisitions? Yeah. So 
my first job where I met Justin Vogt was I, I used to work in distressed debt, actually working on bankruptcies, working on turnarounds. And so I've seen a lot of really terrible situations when there's too much debt on a good business or, or even worse, like too much debt on a bad business. And so like I went into the SBA process, like eyes wide open that like debt is not free money. Like there is serious risk attached to it. I obviously have a personal guarantee, you know, attached to it, like all SBA loans. The, the key thing for me is that the debt terms are extremely favorable in that it's a 10 year amortization and there's no, um, there's no maintenance covenants, which like conventional debt will have quarterly or annual tests to see like how much interest coverage you have. And they can call default on you, even if you're making all your payments, right? Just because the, that like cushion has gotten smaller. SBA debt doesn't have that concept. It's like, as long as you're making your payments, like everything will be. Yeah, which is still, yeah. And so like that, that, the fact that you can only have a payment default is a big deal. So knowing, knowing that structure, like then you just need to manage your liquidity appropriately, right? Where going in, you want to know like, okay, how much liquidity do I want to have around and make sure you start building that cash from day one before you're right. Like don't take distributions until you've built enough of a liquidity buffer that you're comfortable with, whether that's one year or two years worth of debt payments, you know, plus getting some kind of a line of credit from your lender that's undrawn. So like for me, I've thought about it as like, I would love to have like a year and a half to two years of payments sitting on my balance sheet, just untouched. Where what that means is like my business can go to EBITDA neutral and I could still afford my debt payments for two years. That's a lot of time to figure it out. If you can't figure it out in those two years, like, I don't know, sorry, like you lost. But like, as that's a lot of time to go figure stuff out. And like, that's how I got comfortable with the amount of risk, you know, you're taking in this deal. Um, obviously rates increasing is annoying and not like anyone's friend, but I will say like, if you run the map on that, like the actual change in your coverage isn't nearly as bad as it kind of, it feels when you see the interest rates being what they are. Thanks, Samir. Thanks, Kostub. Uh, Robbie, you've been really patient. I'm going to call on you. And then, um, if there are any other questions, please raise your hand while Robbie is asking. And then, uh, if not, we'll make this the last one, but, uh, Please go ahead, Robbie. Perfect. Thank, thanks a lot for putting this together, Josh. And hey, Kostov, I'm just driving home from a day of mulching, so I thought I'd jump on here. Um, quick, quick, oh, yeah. question, quick question for you. Um, as you know, I'm kind of in a similar position in that both the old owners are still um, very hand or were very hands-on and still kind of are very hands-on. Um, and I feel like they gained the respect and of the crew by being hands-on and knowing what they were doing. I'm, I'm just wondering how you kind of tried to not necessarily win the crew over, but how to, how to um, develop a relationship with the crew, um, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, like what you've been trying to do, uh, given that you're not really out in the field, like picking which branches to cut, et cetera. Totally. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't have like a, a silver bullet solution on this. I like, this is like a work in progress every day. Um, I think for me, a big part of it has just been going and asking them questions about what they're doing. Um, like I'm, you know, sincerely very curious about what they're doing because I'm trying to figure it out myself. Um, but like, the, you know, these guys are skilled tradesmen, right? Like they're like artisans in their craft and somebody coming in and asking sincere questions about like, Hey, like, 
what kind of tree is this? Like, how did you identify this tree? Why are we making these cuts versus those cuts? Like, why are you like setting your line that way? Like those types of questions, you know, it, it's really helpful for me, but like the guys that responded really favorably to them. Cause they do like, they, they like being able to show that they know their stuff. They, they really do know their stuff. Um, and so for me, again, I think it's sort of weeding with some level of humility that like, listen, I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> and so if you guys can help me learn this industry, like in return, I'm going to grow this business and give you more opportunities. Yeah, I think I think that's a super relevant point. It's, it's, it's just hard, as as I said, but it's hard when you're not like out on the field doing doing the dirty work all the time to really, you know, develop that relationship or, you know, for them to really figure out what the hell you're actually doing, except for kind of doing everything in the background to keep them keep them busy. Totally. And I mean, look, like I want, I need to spend more time with the crews like, and I'm trying to allocate that time. It's just honestly, it's very difficult to find the time to do it when there's so much to do at the office. Um, but, you know, like one of my mentors who's also on the advisory board, he like, his opinion to me was like, you should be in the field 20% of the time, your first hundred days. Um, and I just, I couldn't make that happen because of just the amount of work required to transition. But now that the business is getting more stable and as we go into the slower winter season, like my intention is to spend actually more time with the crews and drag a lot of rush and hopefully get a little bit stronger. Good luck. Good luck. Thanks <laughs> a lot. <laughs> All right. We're, we're coming up on the hour, which makes this our longest event ever. And clearly this is because of our fantastic guest and, and all of his amazing insight. Um, Kalsa, do you have time for one more question from Amir? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Hey, thanks, Carlson. Hey, uh, this question is about uh, working capital. I'm sure before you bought the business, you, you did a calculation on working capital. Uh, perhaps you made a provision either as part of the loan or had a line of credit uh, in place to uh, account for the working capital. Um, I'd like to know, you know, what were the steps you took to analyze it, how you provisioned for it, and what was your final experience when you actually got into running the business? You know, um, how did the theoretical match up with the actual? Uh, also recall, you know, there might have there were some surprises with your business. Um, there was a theft that happened, a break-in and a theft. Um, so you probably had to replace uh, equipment. How did you plan and provision for all that? Definitely. So one of the quirks of small business deals is that working capital is like not very well understood, right? And in normal private equity deals, you all like buyer and seller agrees on like a normalized amount of working capital and that transfers over with the business. In small business deals, it doesn't really work that way. Um, so you really need to think about it as this is like an increase on my purchase price, right? So if you're going to pay X dollars, you're actually paying X dollars plus the cost of working capital because usually the working capital doesn't come with the business in these types of deals. Um, so you should just be aware of that going in, obviously. Um, in terms of actually getting the working capital, your SBA lender should be able to you know, provide that as, in, as part of the term loan up front. So you should be able to get a chunk of cash on day one for your working capital. But in terms of figuring out what that number should be, the pretty standard approach is you you just you try to get monthlies, um, keeping in mind that like monthly balance sheets are generally not accurate in a small business setting. So maybe you have to look at annuals or maybe you look at like bank statements. But the goal is 
on you look at monthly bank uh, balance sheets, you compare your current assets like accounts receivable um, or prepaid expenses against your current liabilities like accounts payable, payroll, um, accrued expenses. Um, and you net those off and see how much your working capital is. Um, and, and you basically would take some kind of an average across 12 months or 24 months or 36 months and call that your like, you know, your, your normalized networking capital. The couple caveats to that is one, if you're in a seasonal business that can swing wildly, you know, season to season. So you have to think about when am I closing versus, you know, what's like, what season am I going to close on this deal? So that's one. Two is, like I said, very few businesses are actually doing monthly closes and doing like inventory tallies and stuff like that. So you need to like try and figure that out somehow, which is challenging. Um, three is the SBA lender will generally allow you to use cash, like the, the cash that the former owner was using on their bank statements as a current asset. In private equity world, when you calculate working capital, you generally exclude cash because the idea is like that cash is distributable. It's not part of the business. Um, but your SBA lenders will generally allow you to include cash in the working capital calc. The reason you would do this is like you get to have a higher working capital balance than, you know, if you use the PE methods, which like in this context, you know, it does increase your loan size. It increases the equity you got to put in, but it also increases the cash you get on day one, which so I, I would recommend like, Obviously, you have to make you know the working capital request in good faith and actually need it for your business. But to the extent that the business owner has been carrying large cash balances in the past, like there might be a real reason that they're doing that, and it's worth trying to include that in your working capital request to the bank. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Costa. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. I am. Uh, going to let everyone get on with their Wednesday. Um, but I hope all of y'all uh, have an excellent rest of your evening. Thank you so much for the fantastic questions. Thank you, Costa, for your your fantastic insights and for sharing your experience with the community. Um, I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. We will be off uh, for the rest of November. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you again here on Twitter Spaces very, very soon. So um, thank you so much. And uh Everyone uh, have a great night.